There are very few things that investors can do that are free. But what about a podcast that delivers educational content on investing, saving strategies, financial planning, topical items of interest, and maybe even the odd wacky topic? Welcome to Free Lunch. Hosted by Greg Kremitsky and Colin Andrews of the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy, Free Lunch will bring listeners the firm's vast knowledge and experience in dealing with uncertainty to help clients achieve their vision through a deep understanding of what is important to them that requires planning, money, and time. Learn more and subscribe today at markets-work.com. Welcome back to the Free Lunch Podcast with Greg Kreminski and Colin Andrews. Greg, here we are for episode 97. Wow, that's hard to believe. It is. Closing in on 100, which will be a milestone that we'll want to celebrate for sure. Last week, we talked about the difference between a boom-bust economy. So I thought that was a good conversation. I think people should go back and listen to that if they haven't. Sure. And today we're carrying on with something similar but different in that the question we get these days, what's the question we get from people quite regularly right now? I would say the number one question is, why are my bonds down in value? Yeah. I mean, people call up and say, look, I bought bonds for safety. I understand that the stock market's down because of fill in the blank, but I noticed my bonds have had a negative return. And why is that? So we want to answer that question if we can today to some degree. You bet. So listen, in a portfolio, every asset class has a job. So equities, their job is growth. Bonds, their job is for stability and income. And historically, bonds have done a good job of that. But according to some data from Schwab, since 1981, the Bloomberg Barclays U.S. Aggregate Index, which is just a bond index, right? Just measures bonds that trade in the U.S. market. That's right. It has only ended a year with a negative total return four times. Four times in, what is that? 40, 41 years. 41 years. Whereas the stock market has had multiple negative years in those 41 years. And I think if you look at how negative the index was in the bond market, it's probably a lot lower than your typical really bad year for stocks. Oh, for sure. Just look at 2008, 2009. I mean, the US stock market was down 50% at one point. The bond market's never been down 50%. No, not right? even close. But we want to answer that question, like why is the bond market down? And before we get there, we also want to talk about how the importance of being diversified. So why is the bond market down? So suffice it to say that 2022 has not been a good year for the bond market. I think this has actually been the worst start to the bond market probably since 1981. That's right. And there's several reasons for this. Some of them are easy to understand, some of them aren't. But the reasons we're going to talk about are monetary policy, inflation, and the economy. So with monetary policy, our central banks, so in Canada, that being the Bank of Canada, in the US, it's the Federal Reserve, they monitor and implement monetary policy to inject stimulus into the economy or to take stimulus away from the economy. And so the Federal Reserve and Bank of Canada, they do plan to end this easy money policy and raise interest rates. And they already have started to do that. Like in Canada, the overnight lending rate went up 0.25% a few weeks ago. And it's actually expected to go up a few more times this year, maybe 025 to 0.5% each time. Now, when interest rates rise, investors in the primary market earn higher coupons on new bond issues. So what does that mean in English? It means that new bonds issued have higher coupon payments because interest rates have gone up. It also means that outstanding bonds in the secondary market, their prices tend to fall off a little bit. So the market has been pricing in multiple interest rate hikes all year. 
which is reflected in the total returns. And it's one reason the bond market is down. Would you say that's correct? Yeah. And I think it's important for people to realize that the Federal Reserve and the Bank of Canada, they basically control the shortest of short-term rates, meaning the overnight rates or the federal funds rates. And these are the rates that they lend to banks and banks lend to each other. And so that is the very short-term rates, but they do play an important role in things like the bank prime lending rate and other things like that. So when we talk about monetary policy, we're talking about those short-term rates. And as you get into the rest of the discussion, we'll be talking about what happens in the longer term interest rates. Exactly. And that is the measures that the central banks use is monetary policy to either put money supply into the market or take money supply out of the right. market. So the second thing we're going to talk about is inflation. Now, inflation has been soaring due to fiscal stimulus, which has put a lot of cash in people's pockets, but it also has really hurt the supply chain globally. You and I were talking about buying cars the other day and the yeah. price of used cars is unbelievable. It's ridiculous. A lot of that supply chain issues, it started with, well, this incredible demand from people because of all of the stimulus that came in as a result of the pandemic. In the U.S., I think the U.S. government pumped in $5 trillion into the economy in the form of direct payments to consumers. And the same thing happened in Canada. And so all of a sudden, while you expect an economic slowdown, which did happen with the pandemic and with basically the global economy being shut down for some period of time. Short-lived though. It also created this massive demand because of the people had cash in their pockets and money to spend. And that put a real imbalance into the supply demand curve, which you talked about previously. Yeah, for sure. And so inflation in January of 2020 in the U.S. was 1.7%. Inflation in January of 2022 was 7.5%. That's a lot higher. It's a lot higher. Now, the good news is that I know the inflation number in the U.S. anyways in February had dropped to 7%. So it does point out that although we are in higher than normal inflation periods or a period of higher than normal inflation, we're actually experiencing some disinflation where that number is starting to come down a little bit. That'll be important, obviously, because if it stayed at 7%, it would be a very different discussion. Yeah, I mean, when inflation is high and bond yields are low, which they are right now, the real yield, which is the inflation-adjusted yield, is negative. That's right. So right now, real yields are somewhere around minus 4%, which also may cause some investors to maybe rethink their investment strategy as it relates to fixed income. And maybe that's where they start to say things like, why do I own these bonds? They're, I'm getting negative real returns. For sure. And you're going to get into that a little bit too. The third thing we want to talk about is the economy. So the Federal Reserve and Bank of Canada, as we mentioned, they're planning to, and they already are, raising interest rates aggressively to combat this inflation. But getting inflation under control quickly without damaging the economy is not a simple task, Greg. There is a concern that if the Fed raises rates too high, too fast, it could trigger an economic downturn and maybe even a recession. It's a fine balancing act, isn't it, with the That's central right. banks? They talk about trying to come up with the Goldilocks scenario where they raise interest rates just enough to cool down inflation, but not so much that they actually trigger a recession. So when investors have concerns about the economic outlook, as they do now, it's not just a matter of selling stocks and buying bonds or vice versa. Listen, stocks are much better than bonds for combating inflation over time because stockholders get rewarded for higher company revenues. But there's a risk-off sentiment in that bonds can outperform. 
So right now, fixed income is outperforming stocks, but it's outperforming stocks by being less negative on a relative basis. That's right. That's a little hard for people to understand sometimes. I think a lot of people expect, oh, I own bonds because when stocks go up, bonds will go down. And when stocks go down, bonds will go up. And you sometimes see that, but it's not a direct correlation like that. By going down less than the stock market, they are protecting capital because if people had all of their money in stocks, for example, they would lose more. Exactly. And it's always obvious after the fact. Everybody's got hindsight bias built into them. Looking in the rearview mirror says, oh, we should have done this or we should have done that. But that's just not reality. So the question is, is fixed income doing its job? And I would say that individuals sometimes forget that Like any investment, when you buy bonds, you take on market risk. It's just a different market, but it has market risk. That's right. And that market risk includes a loss of principle. So put another way, like stocks, bonds go down also. However, year to date, as we mentioned, bonds are less negative than most stocks. So meaning, again, fixed income is doing its job. Just to put a finer point on that, the fact that bonds go down, a lot of people think of bonds because they used to own things like Canada Savings Bonds or GICs. And as you know, those bonds don't go down in value. Now, in the case of Canada Savings Bonds, the government agrees to buy them back at the future at their par value. And in the case of GICs, the banks do the same thing. But the interesting thing is that GICs, they only hold their value because the bank, in a sense, tells you that they're still worth $100. But I guarantee that if you had a 1% GIC and interest rates were 5%, your GIC would not be worth $100. It's just that because the market does not allow liquidity, or you're not allowed to go and buy and sell those GICs at the market, then it's okay to believe that it's worth $100 up until the day it matures. But there is a market for those secondary GICs. There is. And some people sometimes get forced to sell a GIC and then they take the market rate, not the par value necessarily. And the market rate could be lower or higher than their $100 value. So it's important when we talk about bonds, we're talking about marketable bonds that trade every day on the bond market and have prices that are essentially what we call mark to market every day based on a number of factors. Now, I don't like to use the word guarantee, Greg, but I guarantee you that if interest rates are higher today than they were a year ago, that GICs that were issued a year ago are not worth as much as GICs issued today. I guarantee it. Agreed. So when you go, if you are forced to sell a GIC, you're not getting 100 bucks. You're getting more like, I don't know, $97 or something like that. And I guess that's the big fallacy with GICs or even with individual bonds is that people will say, yeah, but if I hold them to maturity, at least I get my money back. And I know we're going to get into that a little bit, so I I don't want to ruin it. But anyway, so in volatile markets, there isn't always a place to hide. And that's the point we're trying to make that, but diversification is still working, especially globally. So when you look at different asset classes around the world and different geographic regions, I mean, some things are up when other things are down. That's the way it works. Some things are down less than other things is what we just talked about, but Diversification and asset allocation are key components of portfolio management, and they cannot be ignored. So in either case, investors should always be ready for volatility in the short term while focusing on that asset allocation that's suitable for your time horizon. That's the best way to do it. But listen, I know we put out something recently, and it's sort of a frequently asked questions thing on well, why is my bond portfolio down? Because the bonds we tend to own are in pools. 
it's by design, really, because the bond market is not a auction market. Correct. It's not a centralized yeah. market. So in order to buy a bond, you have to buy it through an institutional desk or something like that, That's right? right. And it's very different than the stock market. But maybe, Greg, I'm going to ask you some of the questions from our frequently asked question and let you run with it. What sure. do you think? Yeah, go for it. Okay. So the first question we get is, Greg, why are my bond funds down in value? I understand the stock market's down, but why are my bond funds down in value? And so as you talked about earlier, there's a few reasons, things like monetary policy, inflation, the economy, those all affect bond prices. But let's talk a little bit about the actual details of how much bonds go down in value and why they specifically go down in value. And really, in a very simple way of looking at it, there's a mathematical connection between the prevailing level of interest rates and bond prices. And while the details are relatively complex, the simplest way to think of the relationship between prices and interest rates is a seesaw, or as a teeter-totter, we used to call them as kids. So when interest rates go down, bond prices go up. And when interest rates go up, bond prices go down. And so that's just a simple way to think about how prices react to interest rate changes. And the way you described the GIC situation earlier, you can understand if you hold a bond with a 3% coupon rate or 3% interest rate, and a new bond today comes out with a 4% interest rate, then when you go to sell your bond, the buyer is going to say, well, wait a sec, I could get 4% if I buy a new bond. So I need to adjust the price of your bond down so that in total I earn 4% overall. So interest rates up, bond prices down. But you have to remember, this is a general guide and it doesn't tell you the amount to which a bond goes up or down in value. And that amount depends on a bunch of factors. So the type of bond, a government bond compared to a corporate bond, the term to maturity of a bond. So a bond with a 15-year term to maturity is going to be more volatile than a bond with a two-year or a one-year term to maturity, just because of the extra time that that bond is going to be outstanding. And the other thing is the amount to which interest rates have changed at each, what I'll call a term period, from the short term to 30 years. So as we were talked about earlier, the central banks control the very short-term interest rates. But the bond market as a whole controls the longer-term rates. So when we look right now, and the Canadian 10-year bond, for example, is trading at about 2.4%. And a year ago, it was trading, I don't have the exact number, but let's say it was 1.25%. So it's almost doubled in a year. Well, that's the 10-year bond but we haven't seen the same change in rate at the 30-year bond or at the two-year bond. And in fact, it turns out that the two-year bond has actually gone up further and faster than the 10-year bond. And so just to say, oh, interest rates are up, so bonds are down, is a little too simplistic. That's the general guide and direction, but it doesn't tell you how much your bonds have gone down in value. And when you talk about it as a seesaw, the visual that I got is, you know, when you're on the playground as a kid and there's kind of like a bully on the playground and you're on the seesaw with them and you're up in the air and then they jump off the seesaw and you come (laughs) crashing down. An example of that would be Russia bonds right now. Pre-Ukraine invasion, Russian bonds had a value higher than they are today, right? Exactly. But because of what's occurred, they've come crashing down in price. Okay, the second question is, Greg... I hear everyone is selling their bonds. We hear this about stocks too when the markets go down and you'll hear it on the news. Okay, there's more sellers than buyers. And as we know from the stock market, there can't be more sellers than buyers because there's a buyer for every seller. Every share has to be owned by someone and is transferred to someone in a stock transaction. So the same thing happens in the bond market. 
as you mentioned, even though it, the bonds don't trade in an auction market like the stock market, there's still a buyer for every seller. And so when we look at the global bond market, I mean, it's larger than the stock market. It's about $128 trillion globally. And I know that the global stock market is around $70 trillion. Yeah, something like that. And that's trillion. That's with a tr yeah, yeah, in the front. Yeah, a big number. All of those bonds, $128 trillion, are owned by someone. So, as is the case with stocks, there's equal numbers of buyers and sellers. It just may be that the sellers are more eager to sell at any price, while buyers might be more selective. So, in the case of bonds, the buyers essentially set the price of the bonds that they're willing to pay. And therefore, by setting the price, they're determining the yields that those bonds provide. And so, as I mentioned right now, let's say the 10-year Canada bond is trading around 2.5%. Well, that's the yield and therefore the price that the buyers and sellers agree is a reasonable yield for a 10-year government bond. And so in many ways, the bond market reflects the expectations of the bond market participants about future inflation and economic growth. And those expectations and those prices and yields that the bond market participants agree on essentially establish what they call the yield curve. And the yield curve is just a line that plots the yields of bonds having equal credit quality, let's say government bonds, but differing maturity dates. So if you look at what's the yield on a one-year, two-year, three-year, five-year, 10, and 30-year government bond, that creates a line, and that's what's called the yield curve. Yeah, and the normal yield curve goes up and to the right. Yeah, right? so when we call a yield curve normal, it means that the short-term bonds provide lower yields than the long-term bonds. And it's normal because that's what you would normally expect. You'd expect to get rewarded for holding longer-term bonds. But to your point higher earlier, interest rate. sorry to cut you off, to your point earlier, if two-year bonds have gone up dramatically in value and 10-year bonds have not, then you have a flattening of the yield curve. That's right. And maybe in a future podcast, we'll talk about the yield curve and what it means and how it can predict various things. But because you brought it up, there are suggestions that what they call an inverted yield curve, and that's where the short-term yields are actually higher. So you're actually getting rewarded for holding shorter term bonds and you're getting penalized essentially for holding longer term bonds that you often see as a precursor to a possible recession down the road. But it doesn't guarantee a recession. It doesn't guarantee a recession. It's just yeah. one of those things that there may be a correlation, but it's not immediate and it's not always the case. Right. And so to wrap up that section, as you point out, there has to be an equal number of buyers and sellers, or there's not a transaction. So for everybody that thinks the bond market is going to continue tanking, there's somebody on the other side that thinks now is a good time to buy these bonds. Okay. Question number three, Greg, isn't it safer to own individual bonds rather than bond funds? I mean, at least, you know, when a bond matures, you'll get your money back. And this is one we hear a lot. And I'm going to quote a fellow by the name of Cliff Asness. Who's Cliff Asness? Cliff Asness started a company called AQR Management, and he's a very knowledgeable guy, CFA type, been managing money for a long time. And this was one of his pet peeves. And so I'm just going to quote him. And Cliff says, bond funds are just portfolios of bonds that are marked to market every day. How can they be worse than the sum of what they own? The option to hold a bond to maturity and get your money back is apparently greatly valued by many, but in reality, valueless. The day interest rates go up, the individual bonds fall in value just like the bond funds. So his point there is this. A bond fund is just a collection of hundreds or maybe a thousand bonds in one basket. And each of those bonds in that basket has a fixed maturity date and will eventually mature. And therefore, 
the fund itself as an owner of that bond will get its money back when that bond matures. So one of the other concerns, though, is that will a bond fund never matures, whereas individual bonds do. And that's true. And if you're just looking at an individual bond, it's absolutely true. If you buy a three-year bond today, in three years, it's going to mature and you'll get your money back. But when people buy bonds individually, very often they'll build a laddered bond portfolio. So they might have 10 bonds, each one maturing a year after the other one. So you might have a one-year, two-year, three-year, four-year, so on, up to a 10-year bond. And then each year, the one-year bond is going to mature, and then you're going to turn around and buy another 10-year bond with it. And so you maintain the ladder that way. So in effect, even though that one-year bond matured, and you got your money back, you still turned around and reinvested it in another 10-year bond. And so the value of your overall bond portfolio doesn't have a maturity date either. So your bond portfolio, so all a bond fund is, is a much more diversified bond ladder with bonds maturing anywhere from tomorrow to up to 10 or 15 or seven, depending on the bond fund itself. Well, and you can look at the duration of a bond fund. And I know some of the positions that we use have different durations, like some of them are durations under a year, some of them are durations of maybe up to six years. That's right. So in English, if you're looking at that and you say, well, my options are to buy this five-year bond, individual bond, and it's going to, the yield is X percent. And I know after five years, I'm going to get my money back. Well, in essence, you could look at a bond fund that has a duration of five years and it's kind of the same thing. Exactly. A bond fund with a five-year duration is the same thing as owning an individual bond with a five-year duration. And the impact of interest rate changes will be the same on the portfolio as it will on the individual bond. So in the end, whether you own a bond fund or a portfolio of laddered bonds, there's some risk in owning bonds. The risks may differ from the risks of investing in stocks and in general do result in lower volatility than the stock market experiences, but they can still result in negative return for bonds over certain periods of time, as we talked about earlier. Okay, three more questions and then we'll wrap it up. Okay, question four. Greg, why don't we sell our bonds now and buy them back when interest rates peak? Sure, and so that question is, why don't we sell out low now that bonds have lost value and then buy them back at some time in the future when we hope we precisely pick the peak in interest rates. That's a very difficult thing to do, but the one thing you're guaranteed of doing, you're guaranteed of locking in a loss if you sell your bonds today. You're not guaranteed of picking the exact right time to get back in. So imagine this, you know, and I kind of think of this, I always liken holding bonds to holding a piece of property, an income-producing asset. So let's use rental property because a lot of people can relate to that. So let's say you buy, imagine you buy a rental property and provides monthly income. So you buy a condo or something, you rent it out and you get monthly income from it. But the purchase agreement that you signed when you bought the property actually allows you to sell the property back to the original owner at some point in the future at exactly the same price you paid for it. So in that scenario, if your property went down in value, would you sell it even if you is still paying the same monthly rent? Probably not. Probably not because you know that, well, I don't have to sell it today. I just have to wait until the time in the future that we agreed on and I could sell it back and get all my money back. So all I need to do is continue to collect my income and wait until that date in the future and I'll get my money back. And the same is true for bonds as we just talked about. Bonds are issued typically at a price of $100 and they mature at the same price $100 at some point in the future. And at this point, we'll set aside any risk of a bond defaulting for the purposes of this discussion. It is relevant in other discussions. So if you have a $100 bond and today it's worth $95, 
you know that all you need to do to recover your $100 investment is to continue to hold that bond. So why would you sell it now? If the bond is worth $95 today, as each year passes, the bond is getting closer to its maturity date and the kind of the return on that bond sort of speeds up because not only are you getting the regular annual interest on that bond, but you know that the bond, which is $95 today, has to get back to $100 by the time it matures. So the inverse to that argument is instead of selling it, maybe you should be buying that bond. That's right, because that bond obviously has a higher total return, let's say, than it did a year ago. A yield to maturity. That's right. And so it's called a pull to par. So you sometimes will read, oh, the pull to par is just the need for that bond to get back to its value of $100 by the time it matures. And every year you get closer to that value, the returns are being pulled higher. Right on. So lastly, what I said earlier was trying to time the highs of lows in interest rates can be tricky. And as we know that interest banks in the short term are controlled by central banks, those are expected to go up numerous times this year. Wait, I think you said interest banks are controlled by central banks. Interest rates, short-term interest (laughs) rates. (laughs) I've never heard of an interest bank. No, an interest bank. Okay. So short-term interest rates controlled by the central banks are expected to go up numerous times this year. But the potential movement in longer-term interest rates is much less clear. Because if the economy does head towards a recession, you know that those long-term rates are not going to keep going up. So that's just another version of market timing. That's right. That's exactly what it is. Question five. Craig, why don't we sell our bonds now and replace them with stocks? Which should do better in a rising rate environment? Good question. Whenever I have this discussion with clients, I always ask the question, well, if we sell the bonds, what are we replacing them with? And To me, the decision to sell bonds and buy stocks should be based on asset allocation factors and not really predictions about how individual asset classes are going to perform in the short term. So if your current asset mix doesn't or does not reflect your long-term asset allocation strategy, then absolutely we'd recommend adjusting the portfolio accordingly. And that's something that we call rebalancing and we do it regularly. But let's say you're targeting an allocation. Let's say your strategic asset allocation, this is a decision you've made in terms of managing your risk and return over the long run, let's say you're targeting an allocation of 60% stocks and 40% bonds. Uh, The 60-40 portfolio. That's a 60-40 portfolio. And let's say you already hold 60% in stocks. Then we would absolutely not recommend increasing stock holdings just because people are predicting that bond market returns are going to continue to be poor. Because if you did that, that move would require taking on additional risk. We know regardless of what's happening in the bond markets that stocks carry higher risk than bonds. And so by allocating more money to stocks than your strategic asset allocation, you're putting additional risk on the portfolio. And in that particular situation, then the only appropriate replacement for bonds might be cash. And only if you're comfortable sacrificing income for safety of principle, because as we know, cash provides safety of principle, but with inflation higher then obviously your real return after inflation is going to be lower from cash. Yeah, cash doesn't pay anything. So you're losing purchasing power That's right. by just leaving it in cash. Okay, the last question for today, Greg. Greg, what can we expect from our bonds going forward? Very difficult to predict. Just like trying to predict the stock market is difficult. Trying to predict what's going to happen to bond prices in the next 6 to 12 months is also incredibly difficult because it depends on how much the central banks raise the short-term rates, what happens with inflation. But there's a few things that we can predict with some level of certainty. So number one is that bonds will continue to provide income 
which will help offset capital losses from rising rates and deliver positive returns over time. And so that's one point I want to highlight is that this year has been a bad year for bonds, as we've said. I think the drawdown in drawdown just means the amount that bonds have lost in price since the beginning of the year is something around 8% in the Canadian bond market as measured by the Canadian Bond Universe Index. That's a big number to lose all at once. But what it doesn't do is it doesn't tell you how much of that you're going to recover, not only just by prices recovering, but by the fact that you're earning income on those bonds every year or every six months or so. And so as the income comes in, let's say you're down 8%, but let's say you earn 4% of income over the upcoming year. So even if prices don't change, your loss at the end of the year is not 8%, it's 4%. And of course, in many cases, some of our bond funds would be down less than 8% because of the nature of the bonds they hold. And they could recover that price easily by the end of the year, just through income. So whereas the price reacts very quickly, the total return from the bonds comes in the form of long-term income. The second thing is there's something called reinvestment risk. And reinvestment risk is the risk that when a bond matures or when you earn interest on a bond and you go to reinvest that interest, that the interest rate will be lower. So that's the negative side of reinvestment risk. But in a rising interest rate environment, reinvestment risk is positive, meaning that If you look at bond funds, for example, they get cash flows regularly from a variety of sources. So interest payments on the bonds they hold come in in the form of cash. Bonds mature within the portfolio. As I mentioned, a number of our portfolio bond funds hold over a thousand bonds. And so there's always bonds maturing. And there could be investors that are putting new cash into the fund. And all of those cash flows get reinvested at higher yielding bonds in a rising interest rate environment. So the income stream that you earn from these bond funds actually goes up over time. And it goes up relatively quickly, particularly if it's a shorter duration fund. We call it a natural hedge because as you point out, if more money's coming in or more money's maturing, all of the new bonds being issued have higher interest rates. Exactly. So you get a natural hedge out of it. That's right. And so reinvestment risk, positive in a rising interest rate environment, good for bonds. And lastly, bonds continue to provide stability to portfolio even after a rate hiking cycle that we just seem to be in the beginning stages of. And in fact, after a rate hiking cycle, there can be an increased chance of an economic downturn, as we said earlier, if interest rates essentially shut down or cool down the economy. And that can result in stock market declines. And as you mentioned last time, I mean, the stock market itself is sort of a leading indicator of the economy. It's not sort of, it is a leading indicator. Exactly. And so when stocks do decline, then many investors seek the safety of bonds and very often specifically government bonds. And that pushes the prices up and interest rates or yields then can come back down. So if you look at a couple of tough years in the stock market, 2001 to 2002, Canadian stocks were down 12.6%. Bonds were up 8.1% that year. In 2008, 2009, the global financial crisis, everyone remembers, stocks were down 33% that year. Bonds were up 6.4%. And even 2011, 2012, which was not a horrible year for stocks, but Canadian stocks did finish down 8.7%. Canadian bonds were up 9.7%. So again, it doesn't happen all the time like that. And you can even go through a period like we're going through right now where stocks and bonds are actually both down at the same time in the early part of the year but things can change dramatically by the time 2022 comes to an end. 
We understand that investors are concerned seeing the value of bond holdings decline, but as we've talked about, staying the course and minimizing the diversifiable risks through asset allocation and broad security selection by controlling costs, that's the best thing we can do right now. And certainly, if people have any questions, we urge them to talk to their advisor. But again, bonds have an important role to play, and that role doesn't change just because of short-term things that are happening in the market. And what's playing out right now has played out in the past. It's during times of hyper volatility. That's right. Those asset classes do tend to trade in the same direction for a short period of time, but we will get back to that normal inverse relationship. And I'm guessing by the end of the year anyways, is my guess, my prediction, you heard it here first. Okay. I don't know. Take it to the bank if you like. (laughs) (laughs) What did you call it? The interest bank? Oh yeah. The interest bank. (laughs) All right. Fine. Okay. (laughs) What is that, like a bank where you deposit things of interest? Are we going to go on about this for no. for a lot longer? <laughs> All right. So we wrap it up there? Let's wrap it up there. All right. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time. You bet. Thank you for listening to the Free Lunch Podcast hosted by the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy. To subscribe to this podcast to get more realistic insight on investing or to connect with one of our talented partners, please head on over to markets-work.com. We'll see you next time on the Free Lunch Podcast. The CIBC logo and CIBC Private Wealth Management are registered trademarks of CIBC. If you are currently a CIBC Wood Gundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Private Wealth Management consists of services provided by CIBC and certain of its subsidiaries, including CIBC Wood Gundy, a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc. CIBC Private Wealth Management is a registered trademark of CIBC used under license. Wood Gundy is a registered trademark of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Colin Andrews and Greg Kraminski are investment advisors with CIBC Wood Gundy. This information, including any opinion, is based on various sources believed to be reliable, but its accuracy cannot be guaranteed and is subject to change. CIBC and CIBC World Markets, Inc., their affiliates, directors, officers, and employees may buy, sell, or hold a position in securities of a company mentioned herein, its affiliates or subsidiaries, and may also perform financial advisory services, investment banking or other services for, or have lending or other credit relationships with the same. CIBC World Markets, Inc. and its representatives will receive sales commissions and or a spread between bid and ask prices if you purchase, sell, or hold the securities referred to above. CIBC World Markets, Inc., 2022.